0: Opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to
1: KUCI.org. Hey, this is Dr. Michael Drake, Chancellor at the University of California, Irvine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and over the web at KUCI.org. I love Anita Radio. Hey. Good morning. Welcome back to Ask a Leader in this August 7th, 2012 edition. This morning, we are first going to do a tribute to writer, novelist, essayist, and more, Gore Vidal. And I want to thank Heather very much for that seg, because she knows as well as I what an important influence he's been to critical thinking. So we're going to do a tribute after Heather gave hers. So we'll do that uh, with Professor Catherine Liu will lead us through a thoughtful analysis of the breadth and the meaning of his life and his work. During the second half of the program, we shall hear from the J Street activist Yael Meisel, Southwest Regional Director of J Street Political Action Committee, the progressive alternative to American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, at a time when American political candidates Open up their pandering for the Jewish vote in the run-up to the November election. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with us. We've been treated to a range of tributes to Gore Vidal, polemicist, celebrity, and a great deal in between. He is the last of his kind in American literary and media circles. I frankly miss him already. It's therefore a real treat to have someone as thoughtful and thorough as Professor Catherine Liu to reflect on his background, how it informed his work and why we probably won't see the likes of him again in our media. My first guest, I said, is um, she is Catherine Professor Liu in Film and Media Studies at UCI and the director of the UCI Humanities Collective. She's the author of, most recently, uh, American Idol, Academic Anti-Elitism as Cultural Critique from the University of Iowa Press. Professor Liu is interested in U.S. intellectual history, public goods, psychoanalysis, critical theory, and cultural critique. She's published a novel, Oriental Girls Desire Romance, recently reissued by the Kaya Press. Kaya Press, Catherine? hmm that's it. And so, um, she also received the Slot Foundation's Award for Rogue Thought. Catherine Liu was celebrated for her past achievements in this award, also as an investment in her originality, insight, and potential, which she keeps on giving. Liu is an adult tennis learner who is very interested in the conceptual and practical questions posed by the liberal arts and immersive learning. She's doing that for us on this radio. She's the perfect local intellectual to take up the life and meaning of Gorval Vidal. She joins me here in Studio A to reflect on his life and his words. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Catherine Liu. Thank you. I'm glad you're here with us today. And Catherine, is there ever going to be a writer, another social critic like Gore Talk to us about his privilege and his rare background that informed him of his social commentary.
0: Well. Gorvidal came to age in a generation um, when it was possible to make a mark as a man of letters without a college degree. And we know that he went to prep school. He was born in the cadet hospital at West Point. His father taught there. He um, was born into well— into WASP privilege without WASP wealth. So he comes out of a kind of genteel tradition, a dissenting genteel tradition that also felt that it had ownership of um, American politics, American radicalism, um, American civic life. And one of the features of this was that he hated professionalism and academic criticism. One of the reasons why there was such a boom in that in the post-war period was because the G.I. Bill sent thousands of new students into universities. And there was an expansion of universities, and university professors were hired by the dozens. He always kept his distance from the kind of um, Ivy League and Ivy Tower, um, so Ivy Cover Tower um, isolation isolationism of um, Professional academic life, but this also cost him, I think, in the end, um, some kind of insight into the diversity of the new professions um, in the second world after the Second World War. It wasn't the WASP elite lost its monopoly on the professoriate and on intellectual life, and one of the first groups that entered um, intellectual life, public intellectual life, were people that he excoriated eventually, which were Jewish American. Thinkers were Trotskyists in the 30s who became neoconservatives in the 70s. So he's often been accused of being an anti-Semite. But part of it has to do with this new class of empowered um, people in academic and public life. He also had a hard time dealing with um, sort of new criticism and literary criticism because he thought it was very insular and um, only spoke to itself. Um, One of the things that distinguished this kind of discourse was that in the mass public universities like the University of California, um, new c- generations of first-generation college-going students were introduced to literature and literary thought. Vidal, um, for all his progressivism and his la- and his radicalism, which was genuine, I mean, right. he was an right. anti-religious, um, promiscuous thinker at a time when mm. um, this was. Um, not look, uh, you know, now it's looked even worse upon, but um, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, he took this stand for promiscuity, for paganism, for um, a kind of radical enlightenment, Thomas Paine-like dissent that he continued through his life, but he couldn't deal with the changing social landscape of American intellectual discourse. And... This so so he for me represents both the best and the worst of aristocratic radicalism,
1: and I think it's interesting. He was although not tra- and trained in the academic in academia uh, as his uh, counterparts, his peers, but he was most most learned, and a voracious reader and a studier, and so often at times his historic fiction, which we're going to talk about shortly, um, it wasn't that. Uh, contrived, it was really following closely. It was, it's kind of revisionist when you look at histo- historic fiction. It's really understand what happened with uh, Burr and uh, ha- Hamilton and uh, Lincoln and everyone.
0: He was really erudite and in some sense self-taught, like gentlemen scholars um, of the 19th century, in fact. And so there was a freedom to his prose. I think he also had a literary voice that was really um, hilarious. And part of it had to do with being extremely satirical and campy. and it comes out of a gay culture of um, underground New York that still exists today, even though gay life is much more about civic and public rights than it used to be in Vidal's time. But um, his sort of um, his perspective on things was always, highly dissenting and highly askew. And that's why I think it's really interesting, the combination of that with his erudition. Um, he was a polemicist, as you um, mentioned earlier. One of the funniest things that he wrote for me was the um, review of the 1973 Top Ten Bestseller list. Oh, my goodness. I was a kid then. I guess I was... I read Jonathan Livingston's Seagull, and he goes through the Top Ten Bestsellers, and he just skewers them one by one. They but deserved it. Come on. They were horrible, but in <sighs> Middlebr- but... Jonathan Livingston Seagull really did influence me, though, I have to confess, in a kind of horrifying way. But he identified it as being, you know, um, hippie-ish, married to Ayn Rand libertarianism, which really presages a lot of what happened in Mm -hmm. um, Silicon Valley, at least in the United States, um, during the 90s. So back to that list. Yeah, but back to the list. (laughs) He he skewers the the mediocrity of American popular taste. and, And one of the things he says is that all of these... Um, uh novels are written um with film in mind and with sort of cheesy middlebrow film in mind he worked at MGM he understood what the hack writer was but he was very committed to sort of highbrow middlebrow lowbrow divisions and those are things that have gotten very confusing right, for right. american culture i mean some people would argue that um the highest form of novelistic realism is now taking place in the hbo series mad men in um in um, David Simon's The Wire. So he accuses all of these um, sort of lowbrow, middlebrow uh, authors of pandering to popular taste, et cetera, et cetera. But um, one of the things that he um, kept to, and this is something that I see disappearing with my generation, is that he assumed that everyone had read Proust, Faulkner, um, Joyce, all the, uh, all the theological Fitzgerald. texts. Yeah, everyone had read, you know, St. Paul. Everyone had re- Everyone knew the history of the Catholic Church and the schisms and Protestantism and Reformation, so he could make all these jokes at the expense of religion, and we all knew them. Nobody knows them anymore. Nobody knows those references. You can't assume that people have read Proust, Joyce, and Faulkner. There just simply isn't the kind of cultural fluency that he took right. for granted. Right. Um, but... On the other hand, American post-war higher, acad- higher education assumed that the great modernist writers would be taught as the bread and butter of a core liberal arts education. That is just no longer the case. It hasn't even been. Read, English majors don't even read that stuff. So, that's why Vidal really is, comes out of this period of, I think, optimism about high cultural achievement mm-hmm. and civilization. He uses the word civilization versus barbarian all the time. It's highly problematic to do
1: that. For those of you who've just joined us, we're talking today to UCI humanities professor Catherine Liu about the life and writings of Gore Vidal. And so let's talk about his body of work then. Let's, um, his first book, uh, Williwa, was written, he was barely not even quite 20 when he just about 20 when he finished and the controversial and influential the city on the pillar was out out in 1948 the first really openly homosexual um uh, a piece of of a novel uh he was still only in his early 20s so he's been he was writing right away um in uh I, I I don't know how to describe the style. It's it's a very it's a very cogent, very stern, very clear, very um,
0: well. I think it's sort of we could say muscular realism. There you of go. The Hemingway-esque mode, and he was definitely macho. People talk about him as being a sort of a macho character. So he's sort of
1: an urban macho.
0: Right, and, and Vidal was that. But he was also a bit of a campy queen, too. He could be both things at once.
1: He wasn't, not in the City of the Pill, where you can talk about where it comes okay. up later on. So okay. it, so, and no, this, no, not this, in the
0: City of the Pill. Right,
1: right, right. And so this sort of broke the, mo- it was, and he has lots to say about how he, he was surprised that it was going to be, uh, it wasn't well-received, uh, by many, although there were some intellectuals. Thomas Mann gave him a sort of backhand compliment about, oh, I picked it up, and I kept reading, and I picked it up, I dropped it, but I guess it sort of had an influence on me, Thomas Mann, and that's what he was hoping to get, uh was trying to get his acceptance, so it was, uh, it, it was a very um, early contribution of a very prodigious, uh, certainly, um, uh, array of uh, contributions that Gore Vidal made so I and you I know we both of us just boned up on reading that and it just it's just a searing impression I think it's sort of I want to say Catherine and you can jump all over me but it has that spareness that Annie Prue put in that short story Brokeback Mountain well I it's was not gonna, far is it
0: no I was actually going to say that I read Broke Back Mountain first and then I read this and I thought wow you know Prue did not Cite um, Vidal or as a precedent, but where was it? Brokeback yeah, Brokeback Mountain is really a rewrite of um, the City and the Pillar, and it's about the coming of age of a gay character who doesn't even know the word for gay yet. And um, for me, that kind of the psychological realism of inhabiting um, actually a tennis player from a small town mm-hmm. who and who has this incredibly Um, beautiful, passionate encounter with one of his high school friends in a natural setting, away from all prying eyes, just like in Brokeback Mountain, Mm -hmm. and sort of lives sustained by this romantic, passionate, sexual, erotic experience that does not fit into any of the categories of his small-town, restrictive life, his authoritarian father, his masochistic mother. None of this fits into anything he's experienced before in his life. And, um... He runs away from home and descends into a kind of underworld, a Hollywood underworld that's become fodder for trade magazines, for Kenneth Anger, for revisions of Hollywood life, which um, are all intensely um, realistic in terms of their un, their excavation of the seamy side of the American 50s and mm. um, um, late 40s. Th- the down we call that life the down low now, and he lived on the down low. This character, uh, the down low that um, Vidal obviously knew really well, a life that events that leads him from being a kept man to one of Hollywood's um, closeted stars, to being um, to cruising the bars in New York's um, Greenwich Village. All of this is pre Stonewall, and what you have is a world that lives in the shadows, that has its own culture, that has its own language, and Vidal recreates this through the eyes of a young um, but corrupted um, man, uh, of a young man who becomes corrupted by the world around him, but who preserves this image of this beautiful encounter as a romance, as a way out of um, the seediness into which he's descended, and he's very tough about that seediness. That both the character and the narrator have mm-hmm. unstinting, unsentimental views of what American bohemian underground life was like. The other person who gives us a vision of that at the end of the sixty, at the end of the fifties, is John Cassavetes. You know this oh, wow. kind of a cinematic vision of that life, um, sort of the opposite of Happy Days, but um, vision of the fifties. But the but the thing is that. Um, it it is real it, it really is an accomplishment i don't think you know it's the best novel ever written but in terms of in, in terms of its um unstinting portrayal of promiscuity and um sexual desire he really does capture something about what happens to sex and eros when it is completely exterminated from the public sphere. So when Vidal talks about Romans and when he talks about the Greeks and when he talks about how, um, same he, he called it same-sexualism rather than homosexual, same-sex sex was part of public life and part of a robust sense of um, emotional maturation and it made relations between men and women better. He sort of presaged queer studies. He presaged the gay rights movement. He never jumped on any of, you know, the um, he never jumped on the queer
1: studies bandwagon. He never embraced um, the social movements that came out of the 60s. But and used to say that why would he want for same sex marriage because he thought heterosexual marriages were a complete mess. So he really
0: comes out of this promiscuity um, ethos
1: that we don't see very much anymore. Well, let's go in now. He as we were talking also too now that another genre is historic fiction and with what we said his his you know extensive read of all sources uh, classical and. through to modern history, and people thought that, you know, I mean, it, 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 it was very lifelike. And Aaron Burr was, or no, it was just called Burr, and I recommend everybody read that one. And, and that, that was where that biting satire came in. And we really, I think we get it, we, the satire might give a little more uh, intellectual honesty to what people, real people, were like in history that have been mythologized to, uh, to excess.
0: I think one of the things that you mentioned um, earlier when we discussed this was that historical fiction is out of fashion
1: mm-hmm. with
0: uh, in intellectual and academic circles. So it actually cost him, I think, something in his reputation that he ended up writing historical fiction. And he himself mentioned that um, we're more interested in what happened five years ago in Brooklyn than we are interested in what happened in Virginia 150 years ago. And it's true. There's a kind of um, temporal myopia. So uh, – and realism, even satirical realism, with the great um, novelistic innovators that came up, like William Gass, Barthelm, um, Don DeLillo, they were innovating on the level of form. And Vidal didn't have a kind of formal experimental um, um, agenda. So in the end, you know, his engagement with the novel was sort of conservative, even though he was writing this revisionist history. And I think it cost him something in his literary reputation. So he's known better as an essayist, better as someone who took a dissenting view with regard to the Iraq War and took a very strident one. And uh, um, his his attempt at writing a, a realistic fiction of the contemporary mode sort of ended in 1948. He got that out of his system and he started writing historical fiction, which is a fascinating move. I mean, sort of
1: shows his polymath ability. Exactly, exactly. He drew on all of that. And I think some people, when, when he was, uh, after having completed the the city and the pillar, uh, many thought he was a tennis player and uh, all of these other references that he made and he's, it, it, it was complete his own construction, it's not his own experience. So it was, it's, uh, he was a master of putting together anything he'd ever read about, or heard about, or saw, but not necessarily experienced as a, as a, as an individual. Well, we uh, we talked about some of the historic fiction, and then, that then there's that complete spoof live at Golgotha. I don't know if you ever had a chance. It, it was, uh, he was even adapted on uh, public radio as a radio play, and it was so funny. And so I, uh, it's a it's a a recreation of uh, of Christ. Uh, crucifixion and so it's a and it's putting in all of the the media touches of what it would have been like it was covered and it's completely turned on its side and Jesus disappears and uh, there's a fat Jesus that shows up and it's uh, it's all turned upside down and uh, and everybody was offended and that for him was a success
0: Um, I think that must have come out of the work that he did on Ben-Hur because he got he had to revise the script on Ben Hur and he kept trying to make them a little more historically um uh rigorous. But um in nineteen seventy three one of the best that he also makes that he makes fun of, so I, I was um a novelization of the Mary Joseph love story. I mean, he just thought Americans were just um Adrift. So <laughs> Narcissistic of, uh, about their own um, temporal, about uh, their own times, and so provincial is the word I should use. That um, he he could have spent his whole life just making fun of our provincialism. the The problem is, and you know, much as I sympathize with his outrage and contempt, um, he failed to understand what was happening to the country um, economically and culturally, especially in the Midwest. So he makes fun of evangelical Christianity in a way that few dare to, because everyone from 1990s on propitiated to um, the monotheisms, um, including the Clintons, including, um, you know, right now, Obama, nobody would dare criticize the church. And he did. But at the same time, um, he didn't have the sort of the the perspective that younger historians like Rick Perlstein or um, Thomas Frank or um, Michael Kazin did about what the kinds of um, evangelical revolt against public life, civic life, against Enlightenment values um, that Vidal held dear, to the point where he believed, like the Enlightenment, that like, like the Enlightenment philosophers, that liberty of thought meant liberty of sexual practices. Liberty of practice, Liberty, everything. Yeah, libertinage. He, he didn't see the economic um, roots of that rejection. Uh, the, the middle of the country has been abandoned to um, agribusiness, outsourced. to corporate mm-hmm. America. Um, fa- the family farm, much as it's touted as some kind of mythic place, has been destroyed um, by political and social, economic forces, and so there was a rea- There's been a revision of um, ways of looking at evangelical Christianity that goes beyond um, Vidal's just utter contempt for it, and that to me is it's sad. It's very. It's restrictive, and it's sad. He tried to understand Timothy McVeigh, which outraged people enormously. Um, uh, and the, and McVeigh's sort of libertarian fear of big government. And he sympathized with McVeigh as an actor in some weird way, even identified with him, and did the sort of Norman Mailer-esque sort of identification with a criminal
1: that is part of American modern literature. Okay, Catherine, I just want to step <laughs> back here. Um, that t- For those of you who are wanting to scratch your head, Timothy McVeigh was the... Uh, perpetrator of the bombing of the federal building in oklahoma city in 19 i think it was 92 Five, 95. 95 92 was the other uh that uh, uh, uh Vidal took for task with the um the uh, the burning of the um for which timothy mcveigh re- reacted the the uh, burning of the um the the david um the, the cult in uh, near, Waco, tech, the, the Waco, Waco. The Branch or, Davidian. Or, the Davidian hope, compound. Yes. But anyway, I just I want all, for all listeners just joining in. Now we're talking with human, UCI Humanities Professor Catherine Liu about the lifetime and works of Gore Vidal. We've uh, traced we're tracing his uh, earliest work through his historic novels and now we're talking about the essays that he's, he penned in the last some 20, 25 20 years of his life uh, with an increasing desperation mm-hmm. because uh, he he, yes he missed the the movement going on uh, disassembling the the heartland economy and the socioeconomic fabric but on his on his radar was an increasingly uh, uh, police state uh, Developing in uh, the United States pre 9/11, but once 9/11, right. then he just t- proclaimed every single American airport as a police state. That's by right. what we right. we surrender every everything so that we can all be uh, checked uh, without any probable cause. We're all checked for something, um, and it's ch- completely changed how we uh, turn over our many civil liberties. And that with that desperation, he he penned many books that, including one. We'll go back now to what you're saying, Catherine, about his. I think he had many correspondences with Timothy McVeigh when Timothy McVeigh was still in detention before he was capitally punished.
0: That's right. Um, He... He hated the growth of the national security state, and Clinton passed law anti-terrorism laws in 1996 that Vidal saw as being the beginning of the end of civil liberties in the United States. And so, he's, it's not just Bush that, after 9/11, who um, was able to frighten the populace into giving up many of their civil liberties. Um, sort of domestic surveillance laws really went into effect after um, the 96. Um, laws were passed. He was, like I said, stridently for a kind of liber for liberty. and he saw Americans willing to compromise every single form of civil liberty that the founding fathers had um, established in the name of security. With much care they established. yeah, much deliberation. Much right. And so the national security state was a term that he used, I think, with great effectiveness during the past twenty years. The other thing that I discovered was that in his early essays in the 90s, he started using terms like the one percent and the 99 percent. So there's um, there's a debt that needs to be paid there, even though it's a very rough. You know, many like orthodox leftists would say that's not a completely accurate way of describing the class struggle. But he was very, very aware of um, the redistribution, the the massive growth of inequality. So when I say he his ideas of uh, his critique of evangelical Christianity were limited, and he ignored the economic problems. He didn't completely ignore them. He made them, um, he made them a little bit simplified, hmm. and he didn't understand the geographic. Well, it's a new material problem.
1: for the old guy to bone up
0: on. I know. Yeah. And and the other thing is that, as you said, he was very very concerned and increasingly desperate about. Um, um, the security states uh, monopolization of powers and that was that That became and American imperialism became his object and his target and for all the things that he missed he kept honing in on that and targeting the actions of um, the Bush government especially after 9-11 he broke with Christopher Hitchens on his position on the Iraq war and um, the other thing that um, he missed, I think, was the way in which he focused on the oil. But what we know now is that the Iraq War actually profited Blackwater, KPMG. It, it the wars that we the Carlton Group, everybody, would, yeah, have all been. Of them. Um, profiting shell companies like this and they've started in Kosovo actually with the private contracting of food and building of barracks and the NATO initiative in Europe he condemned as well he condemned it but the there was another layer to it, which, which was an economic layer an incredible transfer of wealth was happening at that time all the name of this specious idea of small
1: government the government got smaller, but private contractors got bigger. Fatter, yes. And so there he was uh, publishing essay after essay. He was having difficulty finding publishers, but eventually I think the Nation magazine was like the the finally the go-to place, and he would re- return that uh, loyalty, that debt with um, his appearing. I, I remember him at the L.A. Times Book Festival. He'd roll his wheelchair with his entourage to the Nation uh, booth there at the fair and— uh, he made himself accessible as he could a man with, with such infirmities at the the That's last right. many years. So, and I,
0: and I think that you also talked about, um, and for a lot of people, I think, um, who didn't read him so much,
1: they remembered him from his television debates with William Buckley. Oh, and yes, we did talk about that. They were, they were, they covered a lot of range. A, a knowledge base, a satire flair, and... Um, and his, just his connection with the, the ruling elite, he had it in spades. And he was trying to square off with Buckley. Who had it more? They, I, I just, I'm sort of incredulous to this day how those two intellectuals or two thinkers could spar. Oh, after Bobby Kennedy's funeral and talk about which one of them knew Bobby best. It was better. So on
0: television. It was and amazing. At
1: length, <laughs> at length. Mm-hmm. So uh, there won't be anyone like him. And I, I really thank you. We don't have any more time left. I want to thank you for um, bringing the. Uh, this perspective, it's more than I could have asked, and I know the listeners are eating out of your palm today, Catherine. So, at, at the risk of being obsequious so publicly, I just want to tell you what a treat it is to have you, uh, and we're, we're hoping to have you back, Catherine, uh, with some of the upcoming events going on at, at the, the Humanities um, Institute and uh, other. Um, let's see. It's also the uh, the humanities collective that right. which you're right. a director. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And so thanks for treating us to this special seminar on the the one late great Gore Vidal who died last Tuesday, as Heather said in her show uh, in Los Angeles last week. Thanks so much, and I want to thank Ralph for making sure I got the message. Catherine takes care. Thanks a lot. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with my next guest from J Street, um, Yale Maisel. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest on Ask a Leader is Yel Meisel, who is going to take up with us the um, the progressive voice of American Jewry that with, with whom she's affiliated. That is the J Street Political Action Committee, established in 2008. J Street is a nonprofit liberal advocacy group based in the United States whose stated aim is to promote American leadership and to end Arab-Israeli and Israeli-Palestinian conflicts peacefully and diplomatically. My guest, Yael Maizel, the Southwest Regional Director, joined J Street after five years in Israel, where she worked with a number of social justice and human rights organizations. Most recently, she served as the senior development associate at the association for civil rights in israel and as a recipient recipient of the shatil social justice fellowship in israel she worked uh, there uh, with the association for community empowerment coordinating grassroots organizations projects for uh their haifa center there yael has been affiliated with other progressive uh, israeli advocacy groups including um, among them the brit setting Vishalom and Shatil. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Washington University in St. Louis and a graduate degree in the same field from Tel Aviv University. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Yael Mazel.
2: Thank you, Claudia. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad we'll have a chance to talk to you. It's some pandering mm-hmm. campaign we're going on uh, with the in this presidential election year. I'd like to start with you, Yael, explaining what is the charter of the J Street and, sure. and a bit about who's affiliated with after you've given us an idea what this charter is?
2: Sure. Um, so, J Street uh, was established in 2008. We, we are about four years old. Um, we are a pro-Israel, pro-peace organization that advocates for strong U.S. leadership in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through a two-state solution. Um, you know, we really feel that the future of Israel as a democratic Jewish homeland really depends on um, the establishment of a two-state solution, um, and that it is necessary and urgent and the only way that, that Israel can remain both Jewish and democratic. Um, that's because we've reached a point in history where where Israel really must choose between three things, um, between maintaining the entirety of the land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, between maintaining its democratic character and between maintaining its Jewish character. The reason for this is because of the demographic situation in the region. Um, by 2020, Palestinians will make up the majority of the population within the territory that I mentioned between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Um, so Israel really faces, you know, a number of choices. Either it can hold on to the entirety of the land in which um, the majority of the population will be Palestinian without citizenship, thereby you know really relinquishing its democratic character or it can provide citizenship to this majority palestinians in which case it will cease to be a jewish homeland um, you know as an american organization um, primarily you know representing jewish americans values are, are jewish and democratic values we believe that the only way you know for israel to to maintain a jewish homeland and a democracy is therefore through a two-state solution um, and, and through the self-determination of, of both peoples. So this is really you know, a pragmatic um, approach to, to the situation, and we, you know, and we believe that um, given the stalling of, of negotiations uh, throughout the past decades, it's really important that the United States take a strong leadership role in making this happen. Um, the other piece of our mission is, is really to open up the conversation on Israel in the United States For a long time, you know, the conversation on Israel um, in our communities, in our politics, in the media has really been dominated by, you know, voices on the extreme uh, sides of the political spectrum. And this has created a really polarized debate in in which you were either, you know, completely with Israel or completely against it. And any any type of criticisms of of the policies of the Israeli government was really seen as as anti-Israel. And and, anti-Semitic.
1: The bigger, even a a more serious charge, right.
2: Yeah. um, And so, you know, there there was sort of a monopoly over what it meant to be pro-Israel in this country. Um, And uh, so J Street is really, you know, challenging this dynamic and and trying to open up the conversation and provide political space for our leadership to, you know, to take bold action on this issue Um, and, and, again, to change sort of the way this issue is discussed so that it's so that's discussed with a nuanced and open um, and and broad dialogue on the issue, and um, and so that people who, you know, who are pro-Israel and pro-peace feel that they have a voice within this conversation in their communities, you know, in in the media and in among our elected officials. Um, so that's sort of a bit about our mission and goals. I just want to mention kind of the way J Street. Um, Works to accomplish these goals. Well, but before we go into um, that, before you yeah. go into
1: that, I just want to acknowledge, though, it's really uphill for J Street to uh, to to counterbalance that monopoly. We know that um, Sheldon Adelson, the casino magnate, has um, he had vowed to put in at least a hundred million dollars to keep Newt Gingrich in. Newt Gingrich withdrew, and so the the heft of the twenty six point five billionaire uh, uh, Treasury uh, the 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 heft of his political contributions it could go back up to about a hundred million when by the time we roll around November uh, toward the um, the uh, political action committees to support all not just the presidential candidate but congressional uh, candidates too who are in lockstep about Israel right or wrong their support their hundred percent support so uh, J Street has a lot cut out for it to try to uh, contribute a progressive voice in the, the the real din of sound that all of that media attention, unwritten by the Sheldon Adelsons out there, creating.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, this election is is sort of bringing this ish, issue into the forefront of, of um, you know our political discourse, um, and and you're right, we're seeing an unprecedented tens of millions of dollars being sent being spent this election cycle to you know, skew the, the narrative and to push out falsehoods and myths and smears when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, we're also seeing you know attempts by candidates to turn this into a wedge issue and use Israel as a political football um, by staking out hawkish positions and attempt to, to win Jewish vote. Um, the, the truth is, though, that when you look at the polling, mm. the vast majority of Jews don't actually vote on the Israel issue. Right. You know, polling has consistently shown that only between 7 to 9% of American Jews actually vote on Israel as the first or second priority. You know, Jews are voting like other Americans, based on the economy, on jobs, on health care, and they traditionally vote gem- Democratic. Um, the other important thing to remember and, and the truth is that that if they were voting on Israel, they would be voting for candidates who support a two state solution. You know our polling again has consistently shown that a vast majority of american jews seventy nine percent support a two state solution and that um, a vast majority of jews eighty three percent support strong u s involvement in making this happen. Um, you know a two state solution has had long-standing, broad and bipartisan support in the U.S. Um, our last three administrations, both Democratic and Republican, have pressed for a peace agreement grounded in a two-state solution. So what we're arguing is that you know, these politicians who are seeking to use Israel as a wedge issue and to stake out claims further and further to the right are actually breaking with this long-standing bipartisan consensus um, and that they're actually completely out of step with what the vast majority of American Jews believe it means to be pro-Israel. Um, so, so that's, you know, part of our work within the context of this election is to really, you know, change the conversation and to. Um, to- to redefine what it means to be pro-Israel, so that it's actually in line with with the views of, of, uh, the, of the majority populace. of mainstream American Jews, that, that what it actually means is to support a two-state solution.
1: Well, I just want to remind the listeners who've just joined us: you're listening to Ask a Leader 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live on the web at kuci.org. My guest in this half is Yaël Mizel, who is the regional director, uh, the the uh, Southwest regional director for J Street, political Action Committee, and uh, Yale, you were talking about then the work that you are doing uh, throughout um, this uh, election season to uh, mm-hmm. to improve uh, everyone's literacy. They, they think they support two-state uh, solutions, but maybe a part of your role is just to uh, remind people what it means and package that for them. So tell us what some of the work that you are doing uh, in this season right now.
2: Sure. Well, I just want to take a minute to yes. sort of talk broadly about the about, um, you know how we do advocate for a two-state yes. solution, and then and then I'll go into the election. Um, you know what you know is J Street is actually made up of several different arms. Um, you know we have the J Street PAC, the political action committee, which endorses candidates and provides uh, funding to um, uh, to candidates running for U.S. Congress based on their support for um, a two-state solution. Um, you know we are the largest pro-Israel pro. Uh, piece pack um, in the country I actually uh, do not work for for J Street pack I work for the 501 c3 the nonprofit arm which is a nonpartisan um, advocacy and education arm of J Street um, so so what what we do is uh, we work through grassroots advocacy um, and, and local communities to right. really build support for J Street on the ground um, in local communities and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute we also have our J Street you um, organization which is our college arm that works to organize you not um, youth
1: but you like university
2: yeah you uh-huh. as in university right. J Street you um, that works with uh, students across uh, college campuses um, in the United States and and this is actually an area where you know we've seen a lot of traction and a lot of growth in the last Four years, you know, we, we work with or, over 40 campuses across the U.S. Because on campuses, especially, this issue is so polarized and so, you know, we know that here, so yeah,
1: yes, it's yeah. it's major here. It's a, it's a proxy yeah. war going on.
2: Yeah, and a lot of you know, a lot of young American Jews were finding that they didn't have a place, you know, on college campuses where, on the one hand, you have you know these very left-wing. Um, Student organizations that are calling Israel racist and you know an apartheid state, and on the other hand, um, you know these these more conservative organizations that are saying that y- you can't speak out against um, any of the Israeli government's policies. Um, so we've really grown a lot um, on campuses. We, ha- I mean, we've grown a lot in general. In in just four years, we have over 180,000 supporters. We have over 700 rabbis on, rabbinic, on our rabbinic cabinet, and mm-hmm. we work with more than 40 local communities through through our grassroots field program. Um, and so I'll, I'll just mention a little bit more about that. Um, well, we oh, and you know, I want
1: you to talk about that uh, yeah. regionally because the reason I really wanted to have you on our community radio program is because of your reaching out in Orange County, L.A. County, and San Diego County.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know... A big part of creating space for our elected officials to act on this issue is to show them that there is grassroots support for this issue. You know, when J Street first started um, lobbying in Congress, and that's—I I forgot to mention that as part of um, kind of the, the framework in which we approach this issue. We also have um, a lobbying um, team in in Washington, D.C., with five full-time lobbyists that work to build relationships um, in Capitol Hill. Um, so when when J Street first started and was you know lobbying in Congress, what we were hearing from, from congressional representatives was, you know, okay, thank you for for telling me about this, but where are my where are my constituents on this issue? You know I'd like to hear from my constituents I, and there I, you are I, I want to make sure I'm sorry,
1: and there you are. you have it for them.
2: yeah. Yeah. Um, so in 2010, J Street established our field program, and, and the goal of this program is to really show our congressional leaders, um, you know, that there is support for this on the ground, and also to change the conversation within our communities. You know, J Street is really, is really seeking to change the dynamic in the spaces where the Israel conversation is taking place. So that's in our politics, in our communities, and, um, and in the media. Um, and, and locally, we work with local supporters to to do all those things. You know, through educational events, through grassroots advocacy, through media outreach, um, through uh, community outreach, um, we we're really you know working to build a J Street presence locally. And Southern California has it, it's been a very exciting time. We're really growing here. Um, we just launched J Street in San Diego a couple weeks ago with a great event. Um, in which um representative davis susan davis spoke mm-hmm. um, j street l a we also have um some great events coming up this fall and um and j street in Orange county in long beach um you know we're really setting down roots um we have some some great active supporters there, and we're really looking to um, to build the organization in that area through educational events and grassroots advocacy. And you know, we this is a really exciting time to get involved because we're just sort of, you know, um, starting to grow and starting to to um, develop relationships within the community.
1: So, for people that are wanting to know how they can uh, sign on and uh, be a part of this. Uh, you know really special grassroots effort uh, there are there's the Facebook page that Jay Street is keeping as well as jstreet.org um, for uh, once one uh, subscribes you can find out about what events are going on you just give your zip code and there boom you find out mm-hmm. what's going on in your area or you can find out nationally like the what was going on last month about the the one caucus um, uh, effort one state here. caucus one state, well, Yes, yeah. to uh, uh, apprise congressional members uh, that are caucusing only over the one state issue solution um, that, uh, that constituents can uh, disabuse them of <laughs> that that uh, there, there's monolithic support of that uh, in the Jewish community, bond. and I, I hasten to say that your membership is not exclusively Jewish at J Street. You are reaching out to everyone who wants to continue this discussion, converse, a, a more sophisticated, broader conversation of the two-state solution.
2: Yeah, you know, we J Street is a primarily but not exclusively Jewish organization, and but we, you know, we welcome everyone who who supports the two-state solution and believes it's you know important for Israel's future. Um, we. You know, as I mentioned, our, our work is primarily within the Jewish community, but we certainly welcome, you know, all supporters and work, um, you know, we work with, with non-Jews and, and obviously believe that, you know, if the conversation in the United States is to change, then we do need a broad support for this issue. Um, across communities in the U.S.
1: So anyone locally who's trying to find out what you're doing, there's there are films being presented, that there's going to be some debate-watching parties going on. You'll po- probably post that in your local...
2: Yeah, uh, we, we are just now in the process of planning some of our fall events. So, um, so if, if, if people are interested, I really encourage them to sign up for... Um, J Street emails or look on our Facebook page um, or get in touch with me. My, my contact information is on the website um, and I'd be happy to plug them into what's happening. Um, you know, we're really. Uh, we are as i mentioned it's a really exciting time and we're there's going to be a lot going on in the region and for those who
1: uh, we're we are not quite finished yet don't run away uh, we are for those who've just joined us this we're talking with Yale Mizell the uh, southwest regional director for the grassroots arm of J Street and um, on our show today, she's com- coming, calling in from uh, Los Angeles. And I thought it was particularly interesting. I, some people are gonna know where the heck did the J Street name come from? And it's, it's yeah. uncanny because yeah. it's the one alphabet missing, but from A through mm-hmm. K, that is missing in mm-hmm. the DC grid. And you're sort of tipping your hat to what K Street's all about. That uh, they've Mm -hmm. they've been a force to be reckoned with. So you're sort of moving up there. It's it's a great uh, it's a great brand that you've got there, um, and 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 a knowing one, that kind of thing. So um, yeah. So
2: I yes, um, you know it's it's symbolic in the sense that um, you know there there's no J Street in in DC as you mentioned and. And similarly for a long time, you know, this voice was missing from Washington, this pro-Israel, pro-peace voice and, and, um, and, you know, representation, so that's sort of where the name came from and what we represent.
1: Well, I think this is um, really, it, it, I'm all about intellectual honesty and J Street brings into this uh, cognitive dissonance in America things pro-Israeli, uh, the continuum pro-Israeli and anti-Semitic, and you're, you're giving so much room for the discourse to open up that intellectual honesty about what's going on, you, you've made, you have positions on the settlements that, that, that are very clear, uh, settlements in the left bank, West Bank, excuse me, and uh, how they're draining the Israeli economy, the military and the de- democracy eroding, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the country's ability to, uh, to uphold that law. And as you were saying, yeah, you know, that it's uh, a matter of demographic reality that the two-state mm-hmm. solution uh, be supported and be developed while it can, be, be for mm-hmm. the, the utter sustainability of, of, mm-hmm. of Israel's statehood at all.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Well, yeah. I, I know you've got events coming up. Some of them haven't been quite... Uh, uh, fleshed out totally, but I hope that people will be able to follow them on the jstreet.org website or the web, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Facebook. And I wish you all the success in your grassroots activism. You're a model to all of us. You're a well-spoken uh, representative of J Street. Yell, I thank you very much for being on Ask a Leader today.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks I, for having me, Claudia.
1: I wish you all the luck, and if I could wave a wand and say, would all the pandering please stop, I would <laughs> I would surely uh, do that and give up on a lot of other things that I like to live with. So um, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, all the best Yelp in your enterprises, you. and we'll look forward to seeing some of the new events coming up.
2: Thank you so much. Okay.
1: Well, what okay. we're going to
2: do is...
1: Um, close the show because we've got Senor Giorgio Rosales coming up next. And uh, I've got more important programming for you in the summer weeks to come. Thanks for joining us today on Ask a Leader. All the best.